My name is Steve Westgarth, and this is The Engineering Leader. This week I wanted to do something a little bit different and share with you some of my own thoughts on what it takes to build a great engineering organisation. Since I started recording The Engineering Leader, I've been overwhelmed by the number of people reaching out to me, asking questions to help and support their own engineering leadership journey. The reality is we are all on a journey of leadership. I joke with my team who say that Steve loves a journey, and it's true because I do, but it really helps me to visualise how much has been achieved over what is quite often a relatively short period of time. One of the things I find really difficult in my own life is prioritisation. There are so many things that I think we should focus on, but in the reality, I can't focus on everything. It's much better to do one thing well than attempt to do 10 things badly. Um, So with this in mind, I regularly find myself considering what is important right now and what it is that I really need to focus on. In February this year, I started a new job as the Global Head of Engineering at GSK, um, soon to be Halion, a consumer healthcare company. Historically, Halion has outsourced most of its engineering to third-party organisations, and it hasn't really built an internal engineering function or had a handle on how to build an in-house engineering function. I've therefore found myself considering what I must focus on to really build an engineering organisation and how to make that effective. There are lots of things, but I took my own advice and prioritised, so today I wanted to talk to you about seven tangible things that, in my view, every engineering leader must consider in order to build an effective engineering organisation. So, let's kick off with number one. So item one, how can we align patterns, principles and standards across teams to improve maintainability and minimise disruptions when individuals leave teams? So why is this important? So so first of all, patterns, principles and standards. So I work within a large corporate organisation that has many different teams doing different things. And sometimes you've got to move engineers between teams. Sometimes people have got to move from one area of the business to another area of the business. And you've got to go through this whole onboarding cycle as people get, get up to speed about how things work and how things have been done and, and the way we want to, uh, we, we need people to operate in those particular services or those particular systems. Something that I found really useful is to have open, transparent conversations across the organization about the way we do things around here. So what's our process for things like pull requests? How do we, how do we expect a pull request to be conducted? How do we expect a, con- a code review to be undertaken? And what's our documentation standards? What, uh, what principles are we adopting when it comes to documentation? Something I've talked about on uh, some of our podcasts is the C4 model, c4model.com. Um, that is a standard that we've adopted across the organization and something that we ask all of our engineers and our architects to to use and to conform to. It's it's not about making a a firm set of rules or saying something is immovable, but it is about saying that this is the way that we operate. Something I've come across before that Netflix has done really effectively is they created a culture deck. And that culture deck was all about articulating how we how we operate and the way that we do things in the organization. And and I think there's there's a similar sort of thing for engineers and the way we expect them to operate. Um the tools we use, the the patterns we expect people to operate in, um, even the technologies that we're choosing to adopt. Um so for me, patterns, principles and standards really important. But the other thing I'd say is that it's really important that those patterns, principles and standards are not enforced on teams in a top-down way. <clears throat> 
It's really important that teams are empowered to define their own standards and their own principles. And one of the ways that I found really effective to do that is by forming guilds, where we bring engineers together with common interest across the organization. So maybe we bring mobile engineers together. We might bring MERN engineers together um, into one particular place. Um, and we talk about a particular topic. We talk about the way we're going to approach doing something. And through conversation, through agreeing, through discussion, through sharing best practice and experience, we coalesce around the best way to do things and the way that we're going to adopt um, and the decisions that we're going to take. And that really becomes quite empowering for the teams, empowering for the engineers, because they feel they've got control over the way that they're choosing to do something. Um, and it's not a management diktat. Um, I also believe that you know, as, as a senior manager, I'm, I'm only one head, I'm only one brain, and actually there's no way that my brain is as good as the your 50, 100 brains that I've got working for me. It's much better to push that decision-making power as far as possible down into the teams um, and simply set the expectation that we want to align and coalesce around some specific patterns, principles, um, and standards. Um, moving on, um, item number two of things that I think as an engineering leader you should be really focused on um, is minimizing siloed thinking and developing cross-functional collaborative working relationships across disciplines. So why is, why is that really important? So um, I've worked in a number of large corporate organizations and also a number of smaller organizations as well. And actually something that both have in common is that as humans, we like to force ourselves to work in silos. And I don't really understand why that is. Maybe it's because um, you kind of get embedded into your work and you kind of focus on what you're doing and forget to talk to other people about kind of what's going on. Maybe it's if you're in a larger corporate organization because you have a department structure where maybe you have a, um, a service department and a development department and a QA department. Um, and actually talking between those departments uh, becomes quite challenging. Um, it's also quite interesting when you've got your departments like security, for example, so who maybe have a say on how you're building your solutions and what you're building out. Um, their opinion is really important and actually bringing that into the mix and having that conversation early in the development uh, your processes is, is really, really important and quite key. Um, for me, um, this this kind of siloed working has never really worked. I've never really understood um, how organisations can effectively deliver software the best way that they can. Because when you uh, when you have that siloed thinking, you tend to find that problems emerge only when that department finds out about something or when those people in that particular organization um, hear something's going on. Whereas actually, you're, it's much better to bring people in as early as possible in the conversation. So you want to shift things as, as left as far as you can. And one of the best ways I've found to do that is by creating cross-functional teams. So when we talk about an agile development team, you know, people would talk about good practice being an agile team having somewhere between seven and nine people on the team. But actually making sure that that team is truly representative and cross-functional is incredibly important. Making sure you've got somebody who's representing ops, somebody who's representing security. Um, make sure you've got your engineers in there, obviously your product owner. Make sure you've got all of the different voices around the table all part of the same solution to the same problem. And then empower that team to be able to have a shared objective to deliver that same goal and that same outcome. Um, one of the ways, by the way, I found of doing that is through a process called Objective Key Results. If you haven't come across OKRs before, have a look at the book Measure What Matters, which is a, a fantastic story um, of how um, you know, how OKRs can really revolutionise organisations. It looks at how Google, in particular, have used OKRs to really great effect. As so I would highly encourage you to, to have a look at the, the book Measure What Matters. Um, 
So yeah, silos, my experience is really bad, and we should minimize that as possible. But also, a, a really key thing here is make sure you don't bloat the team as a result of reducing silos. The objective here is not to have a team that has 15, 20, 25 people within it. The objective is still to have a small, agile team, seven to nine people within it, but to make sure that within that team, you've got all voices in the conversation from right across the business, um, so that everybody is empowered and is working towards that same goal and that same objective. Um, and again, if you've got any thoughts about any of that, you know, please do reach out to me on LinkedIn um, or on Twitter. It's, it's very, very difficult to do that effectively, um, but really interested in having conversations um, with, with people from other organizations about how you've managed to, to reduce siloed thinking within your organizations. Uh, moving on, um, item number three, um, really important. How can we create a culture of continuous learning? So continuous learning is something which I'm incredibly passionate about. And I think this is the idea that, you know, well, why why do we do something? Why do we do things the way that we always have done? And um, we actually need to look and challenge ourselves and say, is this the best way to do things? Can we improve that process? Is there a better way to look at this? And, and generally, if you if if you do that, if you if you approach things with a continuous learning mentality of always thinking, how can I get better? How can I improve? Um, then gradually over time, the organisation will get better, um, and you'll actually be able to achieve things you never thought was imaginable. Um, something I would say on that note is though, make sure you aren't changing everything at once. You know, yes, continuous learning, yes, continuous improvement, but actually make sure you just make your one or two changes at a time. If you make too many changes at once, how on earth can you possibly measure what's worked and what hasn't? And you end up in a bit of a mess where you've, you've made all sorts of changes and you aren't really sure which strategies are effective and which strategies aren't. Um, and that, again, is about effective prioritization and something which I think all organizations struggle with. It's something I struggle with. Um, but helping teams to understand, um, you know, what they're currently doing, you're know, picking what they think is the most important thing to improve upon and uh, the most important change they can make, maybe looking at that as part of the retrospective process and asking the team to identify one or two things they're going to change in a particular sprint or a particular time period and then focusing on that. And then not forgetting to go back at the end of that process and review, well, how effective was that change? Did it actually work for us? Did it achieve what we hoped it would achieve? Um, so yeah, culture of continuous learning, really important uh, to focus on that within all of your engineering teams. Item number four. Um, right now, what does our business value most? Is it speed or is it quality? So this is maybe a little bit controversial. Um, Engineers want to do a great job. Every engineer wants to do a great job. And it's absolutely right that engineers should be empowered to write the best code that they can possibly write and to create the best application um, they can possibly create. However, sometimes it's not possible to invest as much time um, in, into building something. You need to do something more quickly. What drives that decision? Well, that's driven by the business. So the, you know, the business is um, ultimately here probably to make money in most organizations, is trying to drive a business case, is trying to um, you know, to get a customer to, to get some value, to be able to do something that they couldn't do before. Um, and sometimes you have business cases that are either time critical, mission critical. Um, maybe if we don't hit a particular deadline or we don't get something over, over the mix, then we miss the opportunity. Maybe actually the value case is dependent upon um, a particular thing hitting at a certain point in the year. Um, maybe there's actually only so much value to be derived by doing a certain thing. And actually, if we wait too long, then the value case isn't going to be there at all. And we wouldn't have started that mission in the first place. So actually talking to our business and understanding what it is we're trying to achieve and whether right now we want to do something quickly 
so that we get something over the line and achieve a particular outcome, um, or whether actually we're looking at something which has got to have longevity, real quality, something which is going to last, that's going to underpin the organization for a long period of time. That conversation is, is really important. In understanding what is most important to our business now might not be what's most important to our business in six months' time. And that might be different to what was important to our business six months ago. So actually understanding where the business is and what's most important for the business right now is really, really important because that leads you as an engineering leader to give slightly different directives to your teams in terms of how you're approaching problems, um, where you're willing to accept technical debt, where you're not willing to accept technical debt, um, and, and how you really want engineers to approach um, solutionizing and, and solving the problem. I think it's also important, though, to make sure that you take your engineering teams on that journey with you and explain why you're giving the directive that you are. Explain what it is the business is trying to achieve and why the business is trying to achieve it. If we understand that and we can align around a common goal, it makes things much easier um, to achieve and to move forward with. The other important thing is transparency. If we're creating technical debt, then we need to make sure the business is aware that that technical debt exists and aware that we must remediate it at some point in the future. So it might be fine that we're going to do something quickly, we're going to take some shortcuts, but make sure the business is aware that if we do that, what the knock-on effect of that's going to be and what that's going to mean further down the line and when we're going to have to remediate it. So often you find the technical debt has been left ignored, hasn't been remediated, has been left within the organisation. Um, and organisations can be left with it and can be really hindered with it for years. Once a system has went live into production, um, you know it's so difficult to actually get the funding to change systems sometimes. So actually making sure that the business is subscribed to the fact that if you've put something into production that needs to have something remediated, that there's going to be funding there to do it, is really important. It's a really fine line to tread as an engineering leader, um, but something that I think everybody really should focus on. Um, so right now, what do we value, speed or quality? And does the business understand the trade-offs of, um, of those decisions and how that's going to be made? Moving on, um, item number five that I think all engineering leaders uh, must really focus on to build great engineering teams is how we can recruit the be very best engineers to work within our teams. And I think this is um, something which I'm, I'm sure it was Steve Jobs had said this, that A players really like to work with A players. Um, however, B players are perfectly happy to work with C players. And what he's really saying there is, is that A players want to work at the top of their game. They're really focused on striving for improvement, making sure that we do the best job that we possibly can, get the best possible outcomes. Whereas B players are often obsessed about themselves and making sure that they look good. And the best way to make you look good is potentially by having people around you who aren't as good at what you're doing. And actually in your organization, I think, you know, my personal belief as an engineering leader is we should be striving to have A players within the organization. I want to work with people who want to work at the top of their game on really interesting systems. But actually recruiting A players always into your organization, that's a really difficult thing to do. And that revolves around creating a great engineering culture. It's about building brand. It's about building credibility. It's about building a, a culture of respect, of great engineering leadership. It's something that organizations really do struggle to do. So, so thinking about how you're going to go about recruiting the best engineers to work within your teams, I think is something that really should be top of mind for every engineering leader. How are you going to get your face out there? How are you going to, to meet the best engineers possible? How are you going to convince, convince the best engineers that your organization is the place that they want to spend a part of their life? 
choosing an employer is is a really big decision. Um, you know, it's it's not all about money. You know, yes, you might be paying the best salary, um, but actually, if you've got an awful culture, people won't stay. You know, won't last. So actually, you need to make sure you're embedding a, a great culture throughout the organisation and really building a a place where people can effectively contribute and add value to the organisation. And thinking about some of that, um, you know, is is incredibly important for every engineering leader and something that personally I think. Um, needs to be in my top seven of things that um, engineering leaders really should be focusing on. Moving on, number six, we're very nearly there. Um, what technologies do we want to use within our teams and how much autonomy are we able to give each team in that technology selection? So this is kind of linking back to my first point about patterns, principles and standards because you want to balance uh, the range of different technologies we're kind of bringing in. Um, the adoption pace that you bring some new technologies into the organisation. Is the technology mature enough? Are we ready to adopt it yet? Have we really thought through the implications if something gets you know, taken away or isn't supported um, by a third party organisation? Um, versus the ability of teams to adopt the latest, greatest things and really kind of you know, put in place within the organization the technologies that they really want to adopt, um, you know, based upon maybe what the latest, greatest trend is or, or buzz might be. Um, probably my best example of, of where this has went wrong is, is the PARS example. So PARS was um, a system which was run by Facebook a few years ago that many engineering teams um, had used as a, a database backing mobile applications and various different things. And then one day, Facebook announced that PARS was going to be deprecated and was going to be pulled. And, and suddenly, the support of PARS went away, and you had hundreds and hundreds of organizations having to rework their applications to migrate away from PARS and to pick an alternative solution. Now, um, you would think in that scenario that your know, PARS being backed by somebody like Facebook, it was unlikely to disappear. But it did. So how do you go about selecting the technologies that you're willing to let your engineering teams work with? How mature does the technology have to be before you're willing to adopt it? Um, and how much autonomy are you willing to give the teams before you say that they can start adopting your the, the frameworks and the technologies that they want to use. And the thing is, for many engineering leaders, you might be surprised at how often those decisions are being made. Literally every time one of your teams chooses a new MPM package to install um, and to use, you're effectively making that decision. You're asking the team to have looked at that MPM package and to have assessed how well supported it is, and whether it's going to give us longevity into the future, whether it's going to um, you know, provide the functionality the application needs for the long term, whether it's going to have its security patches remediated. <coughs> so many things um, within, um, you know, within that consideration process that teams must go through. Um, and you as an engineering leader you know, are giving autonomy to those teams to make those decisions. Um, really important you go into that with your eyes open and you know what decisions you're empowering your teams to make and what decisions you want to be involved with. And you need to trade that off against how agile you can actually be as an organization. Because as soon as you start introducing approval mechanisms and governance, that's obviously going to slow you down. Your goal here is to empower the teams but to give them specific guardrails. So again, really important um, how you're going to do that within your organization and how much autonomy each team is going to have in individual technology selections. And my final point tonight on um, how we can um, you know, create great engineering teams and the things that an engineering leader really should be focused on um, is all about psychological safety. So how can we create psychological safety within our teams and encourage a culture of fast failure? So this, for me, is probably the most important point of everything we've talked about tonight. 
when you go to work, you want to feel that you're working within a safe environment. That if you get something wrong, that no one's going to berate you for that problem. That it's not going to be um, a huge issue. That your manager, your leader is going to support you if something goes wrong. Um, and is actually going to help you to learn from that mistake, linking back to the continuous learning point that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, so creating that culture of psychological safety where you know that, yep, yeah, it's great to make mistakes as long as we learn from those mistakes. That's a really good thing to do. But actually, we want to not only make mistakes, we want to make mistakes fast. So what is the fastest path we can take to make mistakes, learn from those mistakes, and move on and get things right the next time we do it? Um, in my organizations, I'm constantly talking about you know how, how we can help engineers to fail and fail fast. It's something when you listen to top entrepreneurs talk, People like Richard Branson has, has regularly evangelized about your know, fast failure, creating learning organizations. Elon Musk is another example of, uh, of, of an entrepreneur um, who constantly talks about failing fast within his organizations. And it's something that I think as an engineering leader you should really focus on. How do you create that psychological safety within your organization and allow somebody to fail, fail fast, learn from it, move on, and hopefully do better next time around? So that whistle-stop tour was seven things that I think every engineering leader should be focused on um, within your organizations. Um, as we go forward, I'm going to be putting a few more of these snippets of um, of, of uh, podcasts out as we kind of look at um, different ways of approaching challenges, different ways of working within engineering organizations. Hopefully you find it useful. If you do, please do reach out to me on LinkedIn. Just search for Steve Westgarth. You can also find me on Twitter, at Steve Westgarth. Um, tweet me, DM me. Send me a message, share your thoughts, comment, post. Please also remember to subscribe to the podcast um, in your favorite podcast player. Press the subscription button. Um, would be a massive favor to me if you'd also consider sharing the podcast. The more people we share the podcast with, the more people we can bring into the community, the more people we can share and learn about all of our experiences um, and, and what's happening in all of our different organizations. Um, I'm really enjoying creating The Engineering Leader. It's, um, it's it's really opened up new avenues of having conversations with people and, and conversations I didn't really expect to happen either. I hope you're finding it as useful as I am. Please let me know if you do. Um, but in the meantime, remember... You also write bad code. If you disagree, you may as well switch off. My name's Steve Westgarth, and this is The Engineering Leader.